Hello, and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hazen. I am your host. And joining me, as always, is Luke Boggs. Luke, how's it going? Uh, it's going great. I feel strange to not have an impending election uh, over us. Are we even doing Georgia right that we aren't constantly counting down to some day we need to go vote? That is true, although there actually is going to be a special election uh, to replace uh, Speaker Ralston after his passing. So there is an election on the calendar for you. Uh, well, not for you, not in your district, but I haven't moved for some Georgians coming up. And we are uh, super excited to welcome a special guest on the podcast today, Dr. Ashton Ellett. He is the politics and public policy archivist at the Richard B. Russell Library at the University of Georgia. He has a PhD in history from the University of Georgia, and he is the curator and host of the two-party Georgia oral history project series run through the uh, Richard B. Russell Library. Dr. Ellett, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Kyle, Luke. Um, glad glad to join you and uh, you know, talk about what has been a, a pretty exciting time in Georgia politics. Now, this is a this is a wonderful interview series that I would encourage our listeners to check out, particularly if you're interested in you know some of the deep cuts of history of uh, Georgia politics. He talked to some of the most insightful and some of the most impactful people in the history of Georgia politics. And then I can only imagine you lost a bet or something because you also talked to me and Luke, and I don't know why you did that, but we were really appreciative to to be a part of that uh, interview series. Um, it was, uh, well, it was the, the, the goal the goal is to capture the the past, present, and the future. So so consider yourselves. Uh, you know, lucky. <laughs> At least one of those things. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the audience can choose which. Yeah. Um, so I think to start here, I'd actually like to to hear a little bit about the the two-party Georgia interview series. Um, where did this idea come from? And, and what is it like to take on this sort of, at least to me, when I've looked back at it and looked at all of the interviews that you've amassed over the years that you've been doing this, you really have captured a giant slice of the history of Georgia politics. What kind of went into starting this project and, and what have you learned along the way? Sure. The, the, sh- the short answer that, that I always uh, give is that two-party Georgia, that the interviews that are part of that uh, that series, that project were always the interviews I should have been doing for my dissertation, but never got around to doing it. But the, the bigger answer is that it's a, it, it grows out of the Russell Library's long commitment to oral history. Before there was ever an open manuscript collection at the Russell Library, there were oral histories, what they used to call living histories back then. Uh, of people who had lived, worked with, served with um, Senator Richard B. Russell Jr. And Two-Party Georgia was an outgrowth of a of a more recent oral history project led by a man by the name of Bob Short. Um, Bob Short is sort of a he, he's he's a he he knows everybody in Georgia politics. He just turned ninety years old. He was. Uh, part of Lester Maddox's administration, worked closely with Zell Miller. And he had an oral history project from roughly, uh, don't quote me on the dates, but it's something like 2006 to 2017 called Reflections on Georgia Politics. And these interviews were really a contemporary um, interviewing men and women that he had worked with, that he had known, that he had built relationships with over time. 
So with the exception of you two, there's very few people who are younger than me um, that I interview. So what the idea was, was to have somebody who has studied, worked in politics, studied Southern politics, Georgia politics, and really dug into the issues and, and the question of what exactly produced the political system that is operating in Georgia currently. So the, the system that we're living in, that we, we see operating around us right now, which is what made Georgia a red state. So the idea was to interview Republicans, Democrats, elected officials, party activists, party leaders, journalists, scholars, political scientists, and historians to get a handle on those really deep questions about what led Georgia to transform itself in roughly the space of a generation and a half, although it was a much longer period, you know, process, from a solidly democratic state to one, you know, when this oral history series started in 2017, Republicans controlled every statewide office, um, majority of the congressional seats, both Senate seat, both U.S. Senate seats. Um, and obviously, since, since that um, time, we launched in 2017. Some of the questions have have changed quite a bit as the um, the context in which this project is ongoing uh, change, namely 2018 elections and especially the 2020 um, and now the 2022 election cycles. Well, how how did the how did Georgia <laughs> become a Republican state? <laughs> you feel like that you buried the lead. Yeah, well, well, you know, everybody's got to got they've got to um, listen to the interviews and and, and re- read the dissertation eventually. Um, no, no, there is no. I wish I could, you know, say, guys, here, here's the here's the one thing, but it, it was a process, and, and and what I tried to do in my dissertation, what I really think we we tease out in the the oral history interviews is that partisan realignment is not simply the product of these sort of external forces, demographic change, for example, most notably. Um, It's not just the product of uh, economic forces, a recession, or a really bad candidate, George McGovern, 1972. What it requires is a party and a party apparatus to take advantage of those long-term transformations, but also sort of these short-term exigencies, such such as, you know, a bad cycle, you know, a bad candidate. You can think back to to the early 2000s or or, or 2010s and, and, and conceive of a Democratic Party of Georgia that would not be able to take advantage of what I think all the experts agree is a historically was a historically flawed candidate in, in Herschel Walker. Um, it took a party apparatus like the Democratic Party of Georgia has been building since roughly the uh, Dubose Porter chairmanship after the the you know frankly debacle of Mike Burlon's um, tenure as party chair to build a party 
that is capable of taking advantage of of those weaknesses like a weak candidate so you know the 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 short answer to that is it requires a party a professional party that is able to mount campaigns run successful campaigns you know 365 days a year not not sort of these tentpole operations that that pop up every two or if we look farther back in history every four years um that's sort of the thesis that that that's my operating thesis but all of those other things are absolutely critical um like demographic change things like that and so did i think this could be instructive for our listeners in thinking about sort of where Georgia politics sits now. What are some of the key moments, some of the key things that Georgia Republicans did in the mid to late 20th century to actually do some of this party building? Because your your research shows, you know, that Republicans really were were decimated. They were not an influential party in the state at all. They had very limited places in this state where they had really any influence at all. So what did Republicans do during that time period to do some of this party building and and take advantage of the opportunities to gain power that that showed up at the end of the 20th century and the beginning of the 2000s? Right. You know, if, if I had to point to a key, not necessarily, well, I would say a key period of time is the late 1970s through the early 1980s. That, you know, that's because... You could just as easily say 1964 when 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 Goldwater carries the state, um, which ushers in this new wave of conservative Republicans that sort of ousts the 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 moderate Atlanta faction of the party, which was very much uh, upwardly mobile, wealthy, um, socially moderate, fiscally conservative Republicans in favor of pretty 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 doctrinaire um, what we would think Cold War conservatism here in Georgia. Um, 1966, you could say, Bo Calloway coming very close to winning um, the governor's race. But those those, those high watermarks, 64, 66, are very quickly um, the the hopes that the Republicans had of building a a truly competitive two-party system are really dashed in, in 1968. Uh, Richard Nixon comes in second here in Georgia behind George Wallace, but ahead of uh, Hubert Humphrey. 1970, the party, the Republican Party um, fights amongst itself over a a number of different issues. Um, One of the most important of which is what, you know, what what camp is going to really drive the future of the party. Um, And and Jimmy Carter is elected governor in 1970. Of course, um, 72, um, Richard Nixon wins something like 76% of the state, but doesn't have enough coattails to pull Fletcher Thompson, who who just passed away, the late Fletcher Thompson, uh, across in the Senate, and and Sam Nunn is elected. Um, Sam Nunn doesn't face any notable opposition until his retirement in 1996. Um, So what I really point to and I think this is a, the sort of birth of the modern professional Georgia Republican Party is really in the late 1970s and 1980s when you have the confluence of, of, of a group of individuals led by um, the late Paul Coverdell, um, who was U.S. Senator from Georgia from 93 until his untimely death in 2000. 
a, a former um, uh, South Georgia bakery executive, Fred Cooper, um, Mac Mattingly, who becomes a uh, U.S. senator after a, a, a spell as state party chair, Newt Gingrich, who, who is a congressman from 79 to 99, I believe. And also individuals like Gene First um, and others who come together to build a professional modern party based on targeted fundraising, sort of scientific understanding of the, the, the Georgia electorate, and are, are not necessarily ideologically driven, although these are very conservative individuals. So I don't want to, I, I don't, I don't want to give the impression that there's some, some, yeah, you know, squishy moderates or, 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 or wets as the, as, as the Brit, British conservatives would say, these are very conservative people, but they're interested in building a modern party that can operate in every single election cycle. And it takes a while to do, um, but they're very capable. They're very diligent in in doing that, and it really ushers in an era of of sort of stability within the party. Um, so, so from 1981, you have Fred Cooper as chairman, and then Bob Bell, who who was just uh, who passed away, I think late. 2020 bob bell was just a a fantastic individual just just he and his wife are, were just you know, betty his wife is still a great person um he he was a just a true gentleman and and then paul coverdell comes in as party chair uh and then during that time you have jay morgan who who's now one of the top lobbyists in the state as executive director and this is where a real nucleus of party leadership that is going to carry itself into the 1990s that really critical period really develops and and so that's you know we're talking the critical period that that helps us understand the current moment we're living in it would be the 1980s um and of course, by the late 1980s, you still have this party that is grappling with really seismic changes within the party, namely the emergence of the, the Christian right, the religious right, uh, first under Pat Robertson and then under you know, the Christian Coalition of Georgia and others. But that professional party is able to weather those challenges and more importantly for the party itself, incorporate those newly energized conservative Christian activists into the party, especially in places like uh, Gwinnett County, um, Henry County, Cobb County, Forsyth County, those sort of suburban and exurban counties that up until 2016, 2018, were really the core of the Republican Party in Georgia. So that's a really long answer. And, and that's something over the, the course of this interview you'll learn is I, I ask a lot of questions, but that's, um, you know, during my interviews, but I'm incredibly long winded. So <laughs> well, you don't, you, you don't I, want to know how many pages the first draft of the dissertation was. So. Yeah, I don't think I you know can criticize anyone for being long winded. How <laughs> cuts you know, 75 percent of what I say doesn't even make the show because <laughs> Kyle just. That gets me. It makes me sound real smart. Uh, but one thing, you know, listening to all of that, um, that I'm I'm kind of surprised by, honestly, is that you haven't really mentioned ideology 
that much because um, without doing any of the exhaustive research that you would have done, if someone just like on the street asked me, Luke, why did the you know why did Georgia become a Republican state? I'd be like, well, the party's changed a lot, and you know because I feel like the Republican Party, at least of you know even the '90s, ideologically speaking, was more like the voters of the 90s uh, in Georgia than the Democrats were. And it, it just seemed like a lot of states figured that out quicker than we did. <laughs> Georgia seemed kind of late to that party of like, <laughs> oh, we're really conservative and the Democratic Party is not that conservative anymore, but I'm going to keep voting for them for inexplicable reasons. And then <laughs> eventually it's just like, oh, man, you know, kind of we're tired of this. We actually want, you know, actual conservatism again. And, and am, I, am I creating a throwing out of nothing there or was no, that something no present? no no i doubt i think you, you have a point in in that the the democratic party of georgia was much better at weathering the storm and and capitalizing on its really um singular political coalition what what um one one political scientist called the night and day coalition because you have at one, on the one hand rural and urban african-american voters and then white conservative rural voters which that's the backbone of the democratic party of georgia and it 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 holds up from the 1960s to the late 90s and early 2000s um the majority, but but the majority of Georgia voters are voting for Republican state legislative candidates by 1996, 98, 2000. It's only because of the way the districts are drawn that Democrats are able to to hold a majority in the state. And then when when Governor Barnes comes in in '98, that's when when he um, and Bobby Kahn oversee the redrawing of those districts, um, which are then thrown out later on. And then there's there's mid mid-decade reapportionment when the when the Republicans finally do take over. So there are structural reasons why the Democratic Party of Georgia was able to hang on. But you have to you have to also understand that up until 2002, you had the 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 face, the faces of the Democratic Party of Georgia were Roy Barnes, who is, you know, in terms of Georgia, you know, the top five best natural politicians that you, you'll ever meet. Um, never met a stranger, can always tell a story. He's just a, you know, just a, a simple country lawyer. And, and um, Speaker Tom Murphy, who, who had overseen the Georgia House of Representatives since 1973. And nobody was going to accuse Tom Murphy of being some sort of bleeding heart liberal. He was a New Deal liberal, but he, he you really can't understate the political acumen it, it was required to hold together the Democratic coalition in the House of Representatives. And one of the best things that he did in terms of holding the party together was bottling up controversial legislation that could split that coalition. And, and and before we started, Kyle and I were talking about one of the things that the Republican opposition, the Republican minority in the House did under um, Bob Irvin was bring some of those issues to the fore and 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 force 
Democrats to take hard votes on things like welfare reform, crime votes, you know, property taxes, things like that, that would split that coalition somewhat. But by and large, in the 1990s and early 2000s, the, the Democratic Party is very, uh, very much um, white, rural conservative with, with individuals in those, those rural seats that have lots of cachet and, and, and standing with their, their, with their communities. Um, you know, one person I'm thinking about is, is Richard Royal um, down in Camilla, you know, Mitchell County. This is a, you know, South Georgia district. Um, he's first elected, I think, in 1983. But it's really not until the switchover that that he he's like, OK, I'm going with my constituents. My constituents are voting Republican. I'll join that party. Um, the Democratic Party by that time, you know, he says shifts away from his core conservative principles. So you you would say, Luke, that that yeah, the voters are, you know, that's what the state wants. And it's not just electing those politicians, but it's also those politicians reading which way the wind's blowing. Now remember that the Republicans didn't win the state Senate in 2002. It required three individuals to switch parties to do that. Um most notably, and his, his name escapes me, is from Reed's. Um, he was the longtime appropriations chair, just passed away not too long ago. All right, Jack Hill. Jack Hill. So Jack Hill, Rooney Bowen, um, Don Cheeks, they all switch over and give the, the, the Republicans control of the state Senate. And, you know, it's not too long that the, that the House flips in 2004. Um, another election to think about is sort of 2012, after another round of uh, redistricting and reapportionment. Um, here in the Athens area, you have Doug McKillop, who is a, who is a uh, part of the Democratic leadership, crosses, crosses the aisle and joins the, 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 the Republican Party. Um, now, he, his career is cut short by Regina Quick, um, an Athens lawyer who then left to, to take a spot on the court. For, for a time, has since tried a, a, a political comeback every now and then, but now the seat seems to be pretty pretty safely um, and securely he- held by Houston Gaines, the, the former um, UGA Student Government Association president. But, but to go back and answer your question, no, yeah. I don't really deal a lot with ideology. Um, you, you, you know, part, part of what I was trying to do is, you know, We'll talk historiography very briefly, just so we don't put people to sleep. But in, in, in the historiography of political realignment in the South, usually it breaks down into questions of, is this purely race-driven, so white backlash, or is this sort of more intangible issues like economics, free enterprise, taxes, so sort of, you know, what what one historian and groups of historians have called the suburban strategy rather than the Southern strategy, which embraces coded language and and, and racism. What I wanted to do was say, was sort of set that aside and say, it's all of that. It's primarily race, especially in the 1960s and 1970s. And then 
what I and most Southern scholars and most um, historians and political scientists would say is you can never really extract questions of economics and demographics and, and culture from questions of race, especially in the Deep South, and focus instead on the organization, how it developed to then operate in that context of the the, the post-World War II South, more, more specifically post-World War II Georgia. So ideology does matter in terms of sort of the, the different camps within the party. So you think Barry Goldwater versus maybe Nelson Rockefeller in 1964. The, the, the insurgents are these conservative, rock rib conservatives who support Barry Goldwater. They become the establishment. And then there, there are, are insurgencies again in, in 1968, 1976, when Ronald Reagan is running for president, um, sort of half-heartedly in 68, but, but very much uh, runs a full campaign in 76. And that's where a new group of conservatives um, emerge within the party, Ted and Mary Stivers, um, John Linder, for example, are, are, are very conservative members uh, of the party. Matthew Patton, um, who just passed away. So, and then in 1980, Reagan wins the nomination, but the Bush people, Paul Coverdell, Fred Cooper, um, those are the people who take control of the party. And they, especially by 84, um, they, they withstand the challenges in 88. Um, and in 92, this, this, is, this is where ideology matters in bringing to the fore individuals within the party operation and, and whether they can build on the momentum, whether they can reach out to those new voters, those new, those new activists, and sort of put them to work for the party. Um, I think folks like Rusty Paul and, and Chuck Clay and, and, and Ralph Reed were very good at that in terms of utilizing their expertise. And these are people from very different ideological backgrounds, but they make it work. That's where ideology comes into play is, is who's really going to lead the party. And, and, and it's, it, you know, what, what, what we need, what, what we three need is somebody to write a dissertation on the Georgia Republican Party since 2002, um, because I think that's a different story. That's a different story entirely of, you know, what I was trying to study and understand was how did a political party go from nothing, uh, a, a real non-entity, a laughing stock, to the primary um, and premier political force in one of the largest, fastest growing and most dynamic states in the country. Since 2002, I think we've seen a party that the, the, the growth hasn't necessarily been as consistent. The, the leadership hasn't been as consistent as it was during that, that remarkable growth period, that remarkable you know, two decades from about 1980 to 2000. Um, where the Republicans benefited by some really strong leadership who were able to capitalize on some really favorable demographic and, and, and political shifts that were, that were ongoing in the state.
I want to come back to some of this this party building stuff that's the focus of of your research, Ashton and and Luke, I've got this question for you too, because this it's interesting to look at this from the Democrats' perspective. And and Luke, this is when you and I kind of start to creep into Georgia politics a little bit. In this period of 2013, 2014, following the 2012 elections, and Luke, I'll give this one to you first, because you you started to work in campaigns and, and party apparatuses at this point. How decimated was the Democratic Party in Georgia? Obviously, they're not in a great shape, in a great position in terms of their presence in the legislature. But from other sort of aspects of the health of the party, the health of the state party, what kind of resources were available? Luke, how decimated were was the Democratic Party as an institution in in your view? Well, uh, Ashton, um, you know, alluded to this, but Mike Berlon, it's not a great chair. Whenever your chair goes to jail, it's real bad. Um, so, uh, so yeah, you know, and, and so, I mean, the party just had absolutely nothing. Um, there was, there was, you know, no wealth to spread around, no organization, uh, to really speak of. I mean, it, it was basically, there was a very small office that had like five people and it feels like, uh, and it's a, a much bigger organization now, but you know, the, I think I think that the biggest change you could see, and it sort of highlights the importance of what Ashton's been talking about, is building an actual party apparatus. And now, you know, I complain about the DPG all the time. Uh, it's it's what you do as a Democrat. You just complain about the party. Uh, it's 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 a you know tried and true tradition. It's it's in our covenants that that we must complain about the party. But that being said, it's it's on a better trajectory. And as frustrating as the party has been, you know, now we're having conversations of like, oh, are they spending the resources correctly? You know, are we doing too much and just promoting our top, you know, the line candidates and not investing as much in the, you know, in the legislature when in 2012 and 2014, when I was starting, it was just be like, well, it'd be great if we could invest in anything, do anything. And, you know, it's just like we, we had Jason Carter, Michelle Nunn, and I can remember some of those other folks who ran that year but in 2014 but i don't think anyone else can you you have a better memory than i do connie stokes that's one um and greg hecht he was also he was the attorney general candidate um i don't know that that might be as far as i can get uh that's all news to me yeah uh connie stokes (laughs) ran for lieutenant governor she was originally gonna run for governor but then you know didn't didn't want to lose jason so she moved uh, so that, that, that's about all I remember. Uh, it, it will probably come back to me. I, I feel like, uh, you know, the, the heir of the Tommy Irvine, right. His, his I, I, for I agricultural think commissioner. Uh, I think he um, ran yeah, against Gary Black, maybe. Yes, maybe. he did. Um, I digress. Uh, the point is that was like the last time that we <clears throat> really went full Republican light and also, as much as I really genuinely love Michelle Nye and Jason Carter and thought they would have done really good jobs in, in those roles, I think they unfortunately were campaigning on, you know, we're just like the Republicans, except they were a little nicer, basically. Uh, and I, I don't think that was a good, uh, good rallying cry or organizational building effort. And I think, uh, you know, while their campaigns were ultimately unsuccessful, I, I do think they they did bring in a lot of people, and they the party got a little bit more organized. And I think I think frankly, just like running two people who ran competent campaigns in a really really bad year, kind of 
was a little bit of like proof of life enough yeah. that you know people got involved on on the basis of like yeah these yeah like we could do this we could do it you know luke there, there there's a there is an interesting analog to that um, actually you know a couple interesting analogs to that um namely 1978 which was a more favorable year for Republicans nationally. But in Georgia, this is the first time a governor can run to succeed himself or herself um, for a four-year term. And that's George Busby, who, who's sort of the prototypical managerial businessman cum governor. Um and he's incredibly popular. There's no way you're getting to the right of him on, on issues like property tax. You know, there's no tax revolt in Georgia um, that manifests itself like it does with, with Prop B in, um, in California in 78. So the Republicans, you know, such as they are, they're coming off of 74, which was the Watergate election with machine gun Ronnie Thompson, who gets absolutely steamrolled by, by George Busby. 1976, you have, you know, Georgia's native son, Jimmy Carter wins, and they really can't find a Republican candidate to run. run. So um, there's this, this guy, I think he's a tombstone salesman named something like Bud Harley or Uncle Bud. And the, the state central committee gets together like, we can't have Uncle Bud at the top of the ticket. So they, they, they finally agree to change the state party rules to allow the chairman to run for office. And Rodney Mims Cook, who had very narrowly lost um, elect, election as mayor of Atlanta in 1969 uh, to Sam Massell, ran for governor. And if you put together, I, I think Rodney Mims Cook, who comes from a very uh, established Atlanta family, a very, you know, he had been a state legislator. He had been a, a top tier mayoral candidate, uh, Republican through and through. He gets 19% of the vote in 1978. So say what you will about Michelle Nunn and Jason Carter, you could do a whole lot worse um, than, than, than running a respectable campaign. And, and that was the best the Republicans could do in 1978. And two years later, Mac Mattingly wins a U.S. Senate seat um, from Herman Talmadge. So, you know, the, the Republican Party of Georgia had these same you know, growing pains, we'll say. Um, where the best you could hope for was a, a respectable, creditable campaign that maybe got young young people like uh, you know Luke Boggs and Kyle Hayes excited um, for democratic politics. So they kept them engaged. I don't know how excited anybody you guys. <laughs> no, but the, I, I will say you, you actually probably be surprised how much people genuinely like Jason Carter, mm. like like. People and Michelle Nunn, for that matter. Yeah, I, I, that, that's true. Good things about Michelle Nunn from both sides of the aisle. Yeah, and I mean, I, I worked, you know, because it was strange. Jason joined the coordinated campaign really late that year, so I was around the Nunn office a lot more, and uh, she was great to work for and work around, and she built a really good team. But I, I definitely, as far as the excitement goes, Jason just is a super nice guy. If you've ever met him, he is incredibly personable and just smart and just, you know, he's just fun to be around. And um, I think a lot of people my age, and I'll say definitely for myself, 
we're used to politicians being a lot older and Jason being a relatively on the scale of politicians, younger guy, I think got a lot of, you know, white liberals, progressives, very excited and more engaged. Cause I think prior to that year, I can definitely say for at least myself, I didn't really pay attention to Georgia politics at all. And I was mostly focused on federal politics. Uh, but you know, so a guy like Jason definitely helped me be like, huh, you know, it's like, maybe this would be worth it. Cause maybe we can get someone like Jason as our governor. That'd be pretty cool. So, mm-hmm. and I feel like, uh, Ossoff benefited from that trajectory for sure. Cause they, they have very similar profiles, I think. Oh yeah. In a lot of ways. Oh yeah. As I, I remember the first time I met Senator Ossoff, I, I, I told him I, I wasn't used to, to, um, U.S. senators who were younger than me and, and could possibly be could possibly, you know, depending on how 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 the the the, the cookie crumbles could be in office by the time I retire, um, depending on how things go. Um, stranger things have happened in terms of longevity in the Senate. So thinking from you know where Democrats went in 2013, 2014 mm-hmm. to the the main factors that are widely to considered to have improved their fortunes in this state and in 2018 and 2020 and 22, so much of that seems to be wrapped up in uh, Stacey Abrams' leadership of the state party, primarily through the development of these voter outreach, GOTV organizations that she and her allies argued were pivotal pivotal in uh, engaging with voters who were not previously engaged in the political process. And that was sort of the, the key secret that they felt like they had was this state could be won, not by tacking to the middle and trying to bring Republicans back over the, to the Democratic side of the aisle, but by boosting engagement among non-voters who they argued were more progressive uh so that you weren't losing anything. And in fact, you were actually gaining under their theory by being a full throated ideological progressive and bringing those folks into the process. Yeah. How does that track with, you know, what's similar and what's different about the way in which Republicans built their power in this state? And how does that track against this democratic theory? You know, obviously Republicans are engaging conservatives and, and Democrats sure. are engaging progressives, but in terms of building a winning coalition, um, you know, what's different and what's similar about those strategies between the two parties? That that's a that's a really it's a really good question, but I think it's even more interesting framing of, of the question. Um so on on the one hand, you have yeah, the, the 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 we'll start with the Abrams theory, for example, and and I think this would be we'd probably be having a very different conversation had Stacey Abrams won in a runoff by by three three and a half points, or if we were having this conversation back in in twenty twenty one before before these recent midterms, because then I think the question would be um, pretty obviously very similar in that. Um, the party mobilized and energized its base and and the Republicans did that in the 1990s. But I think that Paul Coverdell is an an interesting strategy is interesting because Paul Coverdell was 
George was a very close friend of George H.W. Bush, who, while being conservative, was not in the Reagan mold. He was not trusted or lo- beloved by the far right of, of, of the Republican Party. See, you know, basically what forces him to give the the read my lips, no new taxes pledge in 88. Um, Pat Buchanan, you know, tries to run, you know rises up in 92 to try and try and primary him. So this is the mold that that come that, that Paul Coverdell comes out of, sort of a business centric, fiscally conservative, socially moderate. He vote he's pro ERA, which gives you a sense of where he's at in terms of the Georgia ideological spectrum. But by 92, um and Paul Coverdell passed away in 2002, so I never got a chance to interview Paul Coverdell. But but one of the better interviews about this is with Fred Cooper, and he's talking about how Paul Coverdell comes back from Washington as the director of the Peace Corps. He runs a, pri- a campaign, uh, the primary in 92, and he has to run against John Knox, who's the mayor of Waycross, Georgia, and Bob Barr, who was a former U.S. Um, attorney for the Northern District. And there's Paul Coverdell, the establishment candidate. Well, he has to go to a runoff, and he has a runoff against um, John Knox, the, the Christian um, coalition's candidate. And he defeats John Knox, and he makes – and basically – um, the Christian coalition does not come out and attack Paul Coverdell. They, they sort of hold fire. Um, and this is Ralph Reed and others. And Paul Coverdell in, in 92 learns to sort of accommodate himself to this newly cultural conservative Republican party. So they, 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 they're able to bring them in Um Guy Milner does this in 94. Johnny Isaacson, probably his hardest campaign is when in 96, when he he loses um, because of his pro-choice stance, which he 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 moves um, in line with Republicans later on. But by 2002, what the Republicans were trying to do was identify people who would vote for Paul Coverdell for Senate in 1998 over um, Michael Coles, um, the the cookie baron, um, and vote for Roy Barnes for governor over Guy Milner and target those voters who are willing to split their ballot. And the, the, the Sonny Perdue campaign pours all their effort into party switchers. Um, not all their effort, but a lot of their effort is focusing on switching those voters, especially in rural counties. So it's not really the same base-centric strategy that that Stacey Abrams – and again, we're probably unfairly saying that all Stacey Abrams and the Democratic Party of Georgia is trying to do is motivate its base. That's not re- – and Kyle, you've made you, – you, I think you made the distinction there, which was basically – Find your low propensity voters um, who are either not registered or don't turn out regularly. Register them, find them, re, you know, do outreach, get them out to vote regularly, and Democrats can be competitive. And I think that 
model that theory is still still holds even though um the republicans you know handily defeated um the the democratic candidates for the row offices so it's it's i would say the republican strategy of the 90 the the early 2000s is more similar to raphael warnock's strategy of of pitching to yes the base mobilizing energizing the base but also underscoring those um elements of his own style his own political brand that appeal to individuals who are willing to vote for a, a, a Brian Kemp, a Chris Carr, a Brad Raffensperger in places like North, the North Metro area, um, places like um, Houston County, Warner Robins, Columbia County outside uh, Augusta, those, those areas of the state that are going to be key um, for, for Democrats if they hope to actually win. Um, so, I would say the Coverdell um, Purdue strategy, Sonny Purdue rather, is more like what we saw out of the Warnock campaign than than what we saw necessarily out of the the Abrams um, campaign strategy, which was far more base centric, um, as opposed to somebody who was motivating the base but also reaching out to persuadable voters. What do you think about how? Georgia Republicans have sort of some of the key actions that they've taken in this environment in the last few years. Um, you know, you wrote a lot about <clears throat> division in the Republican Party mm -hmm. early before they were able to really gain a foothold in the state. And it feels as if, at least to me as an observer, mm -hmm. that the Republican Party in some ways is very divided right now, divided in in a few ways. Um one, I think, is the the embrace of the issue of abortion, particularly after the overturning of Roe v. Wade. And it was notable, I thought, and it it could become interesting again, depending on what the state Supreme Court does with the existing abortion ban. But it was notable for Republicans in 2019 to push through the abortion ban with only a single vote to spare in the House. And there was like true dissension among Republicans uh, over that issue, and that may really rear its head again uh, if they have to vote on it again. But then also the other thing that's been interesting from a party structure standpoint is you've had a widely criticized leader of the Georgia GOP and David Schaefer and the Governor Kemp and other leading Republicans taking real sort of like substantive party structure action to create these leadership committees that allow them to raise unlimited funds and that had the effect of really bypassing the state Republican party during the last election cycle and allowing them to create their own fundraising base and not have to rely on, on the party structure. Um, given the at least somewhat nominal pressure now Democrats are, are putting on Republicans electorally do you think that these are notable examples of, of Republican Party division? And is there any evidence there from all this party structure stuff that you've looked at before that any of this could be their undoing, whether it's in a single election or or over the longer term? You know, th that that's a really good question. And 
the point that you make about the the independent organizations or or, or you know not necessarily organizations but um fundraising arms and that that are sort of controlled by you know the these committees that you know be it the governor or somebody else that's something that's really novel and didn't really appear in this in, in the in the previous you know time in which I was studying where yeah most of your 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 battles for the heart and soul of the party would operate within the party itself it would be at the state convention if you go back to the 1988 Albany convention where you're having these wars between um, 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 the, the regular party leadership and, and the Christian conservatives led by Brant Frost the fourth, which is really interesting because Brant Frost the fifth is sort of the the um, a leader, if not the leader of the Georgia Republican Assembly, which was um, a thorn in the side of the the former um, Georgia GOP chair John Watson, but sort of brought into the fold um, by the current chair David Schaefer. Um, and the subject of truly ruthless criticism that I've heard from establishment Republicans like that feels like one of the strongest uh, divides yeah. or at least faction within the party that a lot of Republicans would like to push aside. Right, right. And how much of of it is just how vocal, not, not necessarily just how vocal, but how barbed their criticisms of the party and especially party leadership. And you saw a really unfortunately timed release from from the the GRA um, in in respect to to Speaker Ralston's announcement that he was st- he was stepping down due to health issues. Um, and I think everybody you know, who sort of plugged into George politics. I, I, I was talking to, to to Jim Galloway on the phone the other day, and, and I was like, you know, Jim, I. You know, I knew he, I, I knew Speaker Ralston was sick. I didn't think he was that sick. And he said, well, based on my 40 or so years working in and around politics is that if a politician tells you they're sick, they're 10 times sicker than they than they they've let on. Um, and you, you Speaker Ralston has been really one of his key strengths since he took that post in what, 2000. 10 or so um, has been holding together the caucus that that's the primary job of the speaker is to hold the party together. Um, we're seeing this at the national level right now with um, with leader um, McCarthy um, trying to 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 herd the cats that are the Republican caucus in the House of Representatives. And. and so there are those divides and there are the divides in the party and, you know, in a different political world in which, you know, maybe we've never heard of, of a president, Donald Trump. Um, there's no way uh, um, the chairman of the party or the chairperson of the party survives 20, the 2020 election cycle. Um, it's very unlikely that that person is reelected. It's not, it's not unheard of, um, but it's just very unlikely. And the same thing goes for Ronna McDaniel at, at the, at the national level at the RNC in that you have somebody, you know, a, a chair here that's very loyal to the former president, um, the chair of the Republican national committee 
that's very loyal to to the former president. Those are 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 unique. Back in the seventies, the the party leadership under Bob Shaw was very close. Um, Bob Shaw, who was the chairman of the party, Bo Calloway, who was Republican National Committeeman, those individuals were very close to the Nixon um, White House. And and when Nixon went down, um, Bob Shaw went with him. Um, yeah, Bo Calloway had already left to become Secretary of the Army, um, but after an investigation into some land deal of which Bo Calloway was cleared, um, yeah, he was he was sort of out of the picture. And, and there was the argument within the party is that we need to be focused on Georgia. We don't need to be jet setting to Washington, being part of the Washington crowd or being allies of the White House. We need to be focused on Georgia Republicans, the building Republican Party of Georgia. Um, you could see an argument being made the same the same way here in Georgia um, in in. 2022-2023 with the current chairman. But again, is it necessary to spend the political capital if you're if you're a Brian Kemp or if you're your other um, more establishment figures? Um, Not if you don't have to necessarily. Um, And if there are workarounds, I can I I, I can understand the the uh, motivation to do that, um, especially when you had Brian Kemp and Brad Raffensperger, who very vocally and publicly broke with um, President Trump over the 2020 election, um, much to their benefit, I would say, electorally in 2022. Um, but sure, boy, it sure didn't seem like it was going to be like that um, in December 2020 or January 2021. But that's how it worked out. So. You know, it, 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 it's sort of it, it's that old adage that history rhymes, um, you know, it doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And, and you can see some of that happening here. But there are there are novel developments, as you said, with the, the independent uh, expenditure units. Yeah. And, you know, talking about history rhyming, one one thing that I've seen happening in other states and other people have talked about is when states that were previously dominated by the Republican party call, you know, Colorado and Virginia. Mm-hmm. And, and then they start losing the party kind of starts going crazy. North, Car- uh, North Carolina, yeah, North Carolina. Yeah. That's a good example too. And I, I'm curious, I'm going to ask my question and then keep talking for a little bit, <laughs> which will give you time to think about the answer. Yeah. Uh, but my, my question is going to be like, who is the future of the Georgia Republican party? Is it Brian Kemp or is it Herschel Walker? Um, so I'm going to give you some time to think about that. Uh, and, and the reason I ask it that way is I want, you know, to, I'm sure the surprise of every listener here, I don't have public polling memorized in the state of Georgia, but at least from like vibes, I feel like Brian Kemp is much more popular than any of the previous two Republican governors we've had. And I, I do also find it interesting that he's the first actual Republican for life governor that we've had since both Sonny Perdue and um, and Nathan Deal were both former Democrats. And so you would think, wow, we just you know won these elections in 2022 on Brian Kemp's you know, brand. We've had this legislative brand that works pretty well. You would think most parties, if they were a- acting rationally, would double down on this, especially because the other brand, you know, 
of Trumpism, not only did Herschel Walker lose an incredible, you know, incredibly winnable Senate race, but the candidate that did the absolute worst on the state ticket besides him was Burt Jones, who is the other Trumpy candidate. So it's like you have all of these positive indicators. It's like, man, we know exactly what we should do if we'd like to keep winning. But I also just feel like that's not what's going to happen. <laughs> and so it's like that, you know, is that what you would think would happen based off of your research or am, am I reading too much into that? No, no, you know, my easy, my, my easy way out, my cop out is always to say that I'm a historian, not a political scientist. So I deal with the past and not the future, but yeah, <laughs> uh, I, what I, what I want to say is that the last lines of my dissertation, which were written in something, I don't know, God, it, it was five years ago, but it feels like it's like 20 years ago because of the, the 2020 time dilation, um, was basically the future of the Republican Party here in Georgia and its fate as the governing party was going to be determined by how it grappled with this new um, reality of Trumpism. And, you know, a lot of people, especially if you turned on, you know, CNN or MSNBC to watch the election night coverage, which was really interesting to see national media covering Georgia because 2014, that wasn't the case. 20, 2016, that wasn't the case. 2018, yeah, a little bit. But to watch an entire election night devoted to Georgia and, and to see Greg Bluestein up there, you know, talking about Georgia politics was really fascinating. And it, they kept, you know, the, these national commentators kept coming back to demographics, demographics, demographics. Well, yes, yes, Georgia is a very dynamic state. A lot of things are changing in Georgia. But the demographics of Georgia, it's not like, 200,000 Democrats uprooted from Los Angeles County and, and moved to Georgia between 2016 and 2018. That, that's, that's not what, what was happening. So you know, to the point of whether the future of the party uh, is you know, Herschel Walker or, or, or Brian Kemp, uh, I think we can, we can, we can probably I'm willing to stake my 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 reputation as saying that Herschel Walker is probably not the future of, of uh, <laughs> well, not literally Herschel Walker, but right. yes. But you know, the the Georgia Republican Party has been pretty successful in maintaining credibility in in the areas that have made southern governors and southern state governments successful which is creating business friendly um states and creating opportunities for growth especially in terms of growth of capital uh, and so long as um the georgia republican party is able to do that and build on the legacies of a george busby joe frank harris zell miller nathan deal um, Governor Purdue. Um, I think that is probably going to be the the the. There's going to be more continuity than change in, in that regard. Now, you would have thought. Um, you know, I don't think many people thought Brian Kemp was going to be governor um, when 2018. You know, when we rang in the new year in 2018, he was able to blend sort of the cultural style um, 
with a politics that was very much in in line with his predecessors, um, Nathan Deal and and um, Sonny Perdue. And I think a lot of Democrats, um, especially sort of establishment Democrats, their hope is that a second Kemp administration is going to look a lot like a second deal administration. Now, the question is, that's very popular with voters, but that didn't exactly carry over and help Lieutenant Governor Casey Cagle. The 2024, excuse me, 2026 Republican primary is going to be an absolute slugfest. It's going to be Burt Jones. It's going to be Brad Raffensperger. It's probably going to be Chris Carr, which you can think in a, in a, in in an alternate universe where the Isaacson deal wing is, is dominant would be the, the favored candidate. That's four years from now. And man, a lot can change in four years, you know, and, and we have to to remark on the fact that the Democrats, you know, we were talking we, we talked about 2014 a lot and think about how bad of a cycle that was for the Democrats um, nationally. And that, of course, spilled over in Georgia um, with, with that being. Uh, President Obama's second midterm. I think it is pretty remarkable how well the Democrats did nationally, considering this was a, a Democratic midterm, a midterm with a Democratic president with um, numbers and you know key key indicators that would point to a very bad year for Democrats that they were able to. Um, not really lose too much ground in the legislature, despite redrawing. I think they picked up seats. I, I I believe that's true, especially in the state senate. Um, I'd have to go back and look at the the state house, but again, this does feel a lot more like the 1990s for Republicans. You know, if you, if you're if you're trying to place this on the spectrum, and again, this isn't a one to one correlation, but it does feel a lot more like, despite. Um, structural impediments um, thrown in their path by the Republican um, legislature and and administration, be it um, redistricting lines that are favorable to Republicans, um, the voting bill. um, If you want to think of those as analogs to, to what Governor Barnes and Bobby Kahn were trying to do to to slow the pace of Republican growth back in the 90s. That's what it feels like. Um, but the future of, of, of the, the, the Georgia Republican Party, I think if I had, you know, if this was predicted and I had, you know, a thousand dollars and I had I had to guess, I would probably say continuity over some sort of radical shift. Um, but again, you know, we all lived through 2016. So what's the point in predicting politics? Yeah, and I, I agree. It's it's incredibly hard. Um, I, I, I the thing I think is 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 going to be interesting to watch is just how if the Trump wing is going to be able to pull off what Brian Kemp did, which is kind of go from being 
seeing as the firebrand true conservative to <laughs> appearing very moderate. I mean, yeah, they, I, I think to most voters, he seems like a moderate these days just because of how much the political climate has changed. I think his comparison to deal makes him look mm-hmm. far less moderate. Uh, but, you know, because deal deal just would not have passed the, the heartbeat bill. He just wouldn't have done it. Like, you, you could not make him do it. He would have vetoed it, just like he vetoed a lot of other conservative red meat bills. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, like, Kemp, once it hits his desk, it's like, oh, I'm going to sign it. <laughs> basically what it seems like um and so it, but but besides that one element of him he's focused on a lot of issues that frankly i'm surprised he really dedicated a lot of his political you know capital to like teacher raises and getting state a lot of other state employees raises as well and so it's a, a it's, tried and true georgia political tradition bipartisan tradition uh, going going way back <laughs> It is, um, but I, I think what's just fascinating to me about that is that um, that wasn't paired with a we're going to eliminate X department because I think it's stupid and waste money and just you know like cutting a bunch of government services or you know defunding education. It's yeah. it, it maybe it was just the COVID era where a bunch of you know free federal money was coming in everywhere that made it like easier for him to do that. But he he. Kemp has definitely not I, he, approached. He could, have, he could have gone the route of you know Mississippi and and, and Alabama and, and diverted a lot of these things to, you know, the, I, I don't want to say necessarily nefarious uh, purposes, but but certainly less um, worthy or impactful um, projects. So, right, and just yeah, you know, the fact that we haven't gone the way of Kansas yet. I mean, there's there's still time. There's always time. Uh, but you know, it, it's just Kansas, which, to me. which reelected a, a Democratic governor in a midterm election. So, yeah, I, I feel like that that example uh, has has been learned here in Georgia better than some other Republican states. Yeah, yeah right. right. And, and a lot of that has to do with, yeah, you can look at the think back to, to last Tuesday when when all the you know, the red counties south of the the fall line are coming in or 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 sort of the, the counties north of of um you know, Forsyth and Dawsonville the, these are all coming in and it's trickling in thousands here and the, the, the make or break whether whether Herschel Walker was going to win or 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 Raphael Warnock was going to win the second that the 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 vast majority of the returns were in from Forsyth County and Cherokee County and the margins weren't there. It was over. And, and Greg Bluestein was on, uh, you know, talking to Rachel Maddow and, and he could have he, he basically called the race and said, you know, it's all over. But the county- I, I called it by 730. Right. You can just look at the numbers and and in a state that with with the exception of Raphael Warnock it seems is is pretty inelastic and, and is very predictable in terms of you know if, if people are hitting their numbers in those key counties you can figure it out and yeah the future of the Republican Party is if they lose much more ground in Forsyth County Cherokee County uh, is Fayette County Paulding County, you you can't you can't squeeze too much more blood from the stone that is rural Georgia. I I, I 
you know, if you look at not 2018 and, and, and the, the sort of red wall votes that, that came th- through for, for Brian Kemp, uh, who got higher margins than Donald Trump did, you know, you can only win Glasscock County by so, so much and, 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 and get so many votes out of it. But if Democrats are able to, you know, win 40% of Forsyth County or, or 35% of Cherokee County or, or able to flip a Fayette County, you know, there's not a whole lot of major Republican vote banks left in the state. And, and you, you're going to have to, the Georgia Republicans are going to have to rely on growth in places like Walton County, Jackson County, Dawson County, and those areas are growing, but what are the voters going to be like who are moving there to, to work in, you know, high tech battery factories and things like that? Um, I, I don't know, but I, I have to assume that those numbers and those, those Democratic inroads in, in Forsyth County and Cherokee County and Bartow County that's probably what's keeping um, Republican strategists up at night is to not necessarily how to juice the margins in Glasscock and Banks and Colquitt County, but how to arrest the slide or the erosion in in the, the North Metro area. Truly yeah. remarkable to me for Cherokee County to be a pivotal uh County for Republicans future. Having grown up there and when I uh, graduated from high school there, <clears throat> that time period, Cherokee County was, I believe, the most Republican county in the entire country. Uh, <laughs> and so the idea that Republicans' fortunes have slid there is is uh, shocking to me. Um, Luke, what'd you have? Yeah, I was just going to say, I feel like the past couple elections have been like, oh, that's a Democrat counting out? Okay. <laughs> You know, it's just like, all right, it just like the, the switch happens so quickly. And I think that's the thing. Um, we just assume that the Democrats are now going to win Henry County. They're going to win Rockdale and Newton County. And, and in 2008, that, you know, 2008, 2012, that was that was a huge shift. And now it's just a given. Well, she Luke, got you, Kyle. Well, for. I don't want to cut us short if there's bigger stuff to do, but if not in closing, I was just going to ask you one to come back to the uh, two party Georgia interview series. What's the most memorable or most unique interview that you've, you've done in the series? Oh God, that, that, that's. Mine's the longest, isn't it? <laughs> no, no, no. I, I think Chuck Clay is still the longest. Damn. Uh, I was trying to beat him. You know, Chuck, Chuck's one of those guys, you just, uh, he and Rusty Paul are just sort of wind them up and watch them go kind of, um, kind of interviews. But, you know, if I have to think about the most memorable interview, I would probably, oh gosh, this is so hard. Um, I would say the most memorable interview that I did was probably with Jarvin Levison, who he was telling us about you know his memories of voting for Jimmy Carmichael against Gene Talmadge back in 1946 and and, and working in Ellis Arnold's 
law office. And this this was this was a, a lawyer um, who came up through the 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 Eisenhower wing of the party, the Dewey wing of the party, and that he had been involved in all these these the party back when you could literally fit folks into um, a a phone booth through this period of, of, of political history where you know we, we were talking about everybody from Gene Talmadge to, to Donald Trump and and there have been lots of comparisons between the two but but I think Jarvin was the only person to to be around <laughs> at least in this interview uh, series to to remark on on their political styles. Um, Greg Bluestein, Jim Galloway, Tom Crawford. Tom Crawford, the late, late great Tom Crawford, was was a fantastic interview. Um, it's always really interesting to talk to the 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 individuals who are covering politics and have that perspective of of um, you know sort of the, the the detachment and the the ability to cover things. Um, Chuck Bullock. The, the sort of dean of, of Southern political scientists. He was a member of my dissertation committee. And, and to get to sit down and just talk politics with him in this setting uh, was absolutely fantastic. Um, yeah, I mean, every interview, every interview, I think it has, has, has its high points and, and um, you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm just incredibly fortunate that, that, um, I was able to, to attend, um, a great school like the university of Georgia, get, you know, two degrees. So I'm a double dog and I get to live out the dream of every UGA graduate, which is you get to stay in Athens, work at your alma mater, um, and, and do something that, uh, and make a living doing something that I would gladly do for free if the mortgage company took job satisfaction as payment. <laughs> so you, yeah, you, uh, Kirby Smart, living the dream. Yeah, yeah. That that's it, it's. We're always, you know, we're always the uh, two sides of the same coin. Everybody says that. I think. <laughs> yeah, it's good to be the you know the Kirby well, Smart. I, I, I do. I do wish we could switch salaries for just one day. I think that would be. That would be great. <laughs> um, I think my last question, you know, after listening to that, is: Is there anybody who you haven't gotten to interview that you still really want to? Hopefully, they're listening and realize this is a great <laughs> opportunity for them. Uh, well, there there are individuals who 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 I do need to interview. Um, Nathan Deal, um, Governor Deal. Um, Governor Purdue, um, Chancellor Purdue, who I guess technically, you know, and some, some, you know, links in the chain is my my boss at some point. Um, Though those are two individuals that I do need to interview. Um, I do regret that I was never never able to interview um, Johnny Isaacson because of his 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 health um, and his, his rapid decline. That 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 was a real missed opportunity. That. Like you know, like Paul Coverdell, of course, I was, I was, uh, I, I was in the middle of freshman football camp in high school when when Paul Coverdell passed away. I had no idea who he was. Um, but but those those are individuals that that I, I want to uh, make want to make sure that they're 
their their um, their reflections, their recollections of of um, their time in party politics are recorded. Um, there are some other folks um, that we're we're in conversation with. Um, you know, thanks to the support of the the Russell Foundation and the University of Georgia, we're able to tr- do a bit of traveling uh, around to to get you know, sort of high quality. Um, archival quality interviews with folks who, who live in Washington, D.C. Um, and elsewhere. Um, we've started a new series called the Senate Staff um, Oral History Project, which focuses on senior staffers to, to U.S. senators and to document how um, applied politics has, has evolved over time, how the U.S. Senate has evolved as an institution um, and, and what it was like to work in the, in the context of the U.S. Senate back in the, say, the 1970s, 1980s, 1990s. Um, so it's not focused explicitly or, or exclusively on the members themselves, you know, the Herman Talmages, the Mac Mattingly's, the Sam Nunn's, but understanding the interplay within the staff, between personal staff and, and, and committee staff, and, and how... Um, how the institution of the U.S. Senate has has changed over time, which is, you know, what what we do here in history is is grapple with the questions of change over time, um, and we hope that's going to be a real resource, not just to individuals studying, you know, the politics and public policy emanating from U.S. Senate offices, but people who are considering a career in politics to to understand what it's been like to to work in Congress and to realize that things like low pay and long hours have always been part of of government service, especially at the staff level. Um, but to understand that, you know, you no longer have to work the dictaphone or or, or, or telex lines. There, there are there are there are better there are better things that have come along since then. Um, are the so Twitter yeah, feeds better? <laughs> Our twi- well, I mean, you know, I, I think we're probably going to be start. You know, we're probably going to be talking about Mastodon feeds pretty soon. Uh, I, I don't know. Um, it, I, 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 I don't know. You know, social social media has become so so. Yeah, I can remember back in the early days of I guess my age is showing here, but I can remember when Facebook was a bunch of college students only. You know, there were no grandmas and grandpas. There were no companies on there. And the 2008 election was, you know, that that we thought that was the social media um, election. And it was so novel. Um, and now how much politics is comms and, and how focused and how social media has driven um, the campaign cycles. Um yeah, you think you think back, and it's not unlike the sort of the other sort of political gatekeepers. Um, if you think back to you know, political conventions as as gatekeeping, um, where the the party chooses, and you, the party chooses who it funds, the party chooses who it nominates, and it's hard to see where uh, on the Democratic side. A Cory Bush is able to to oust. Um, it's not. Was it a Cleaver? Emmanuel Cleaver? 
No, it was. Um, but the longtime St. Louis congressman or Joe Crowley loses to, to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez um, or on the Republican side here in Georgia, Marjorie Taylor Greene, of all people, becomes a member of the, the U.S. House of Representatives without social media, without sort of this the, and to gain these national um, national um, notoriety without social media. So I don't know. That's something to think about. <laughs> but again, how fragile is that when, when, you know, Elon Musk, who's the, the owner of Twitter now, could get tired of it tomorrow, say it's not worth it and shutter the entire operation. What then? No, not, not that that's likely, but what would that mean for political political messaging and, and, and political journalism, which so much of it is, well, you know, get on the Twitter wire. What's going on? I guess people have to start reading press releases again. <laughs> that is a new wrinkle. It is it is never boring in political reporting, and it is never boring never boring in Georgia politics. Yeah. Doctor Ashton Allett, we appreciate the time. The interview project is called the Two Party Georgia Oral History Project through the Richard B. Russell Library at the University of Georgia. One of Georgia's finest, a damn good dog, Ashton Allen. Thanks for joining the podcast today. Oh, well, thank you for Thanks having for being here. I wouldn't miss it, guys. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for tuning into Peach Pod. If you liked what you heard, subscribe to Peach Pod on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back with another episode next week. Until then, take care, y'all.